Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and it is that time of the week, that lovely time of the week where the power panel gathers, assembles, whatever you want to call it, and we we talk. We call it guy talk or guys who talk. What we do is we take your questions and we do our very best to answer them. We don't always know the answers to everything that gets asked, but we certainly try. We've got uh, a power panel today consists of Jeff Verdorn. Pastor Tom Parrish and Trevor Rubenstein. Gentlemen, welcome. Good afternoon, Bill. Good to be here, Bill. Thanks for having us. Yeah. And Trevor, I said your name, your last name correctly, didn't I? Yeah, that's rare, so I really appreciate well, I, that, I, Bill. I always say in my head, Frankenstein. That's right. And then I say Rubenstein. Yeah, Einstein, yeah. Frankenstein, Rubenstein. Because <laughs> the tendency would be to say Frankenstein. Yeah, well, that's the English language. It often uh, is spelt in a different way and how it's supposed to be pronounced. Yeah. Well, not to put you on the hot seat right to start, but my first question is, I think, your department. So if I may. Sure. um, Before I ask the question, you've been on my show a couple of times, and I've loved having you on, um, but just because we have a a really regular group of people that love Guide Talk, would you just give us a 30-second sort of background of your story? Let's see if I can do 20. Okay. So I was born and raised in a Jewish home in northern Minnesota. I uh, actually came to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior at 18 years old, which is now 30 years ago. Um, and I've been blessed most recently, Bill, to work in uh, Jewish outreach. So I'm an evangelist to the Jewish community here in Minnesota. Nice. Uh, so you're 52 years old now. That's great. <laughs> I did the math. <laughs> what is so funny, Tom Parrish? I don't find anything funny. About I'm sorry. I, should, so I shouldn't be laughing at your mathematics. <laughs> oh, okay. So, Trevor, thank you for being here. Here's the question. Because uh, you work with Chosen People Ministry. Yeah. And the question is, their website mentioned using the Old Testament to reach Jews. Would love to hear some stories about this. What a great question. I though. agree. I wonder who the deep thinking individual is. <laughs> Somebody is, is deep thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I, I say that semi-jokingly because we know who asked the question. But uh, but anyway, um, yeah, so Bill, uh, it's a powerful tool. Uh, there's a unique thing to Jewish outreach um, that might distinguish it from outreach to uh, other people groups is that we share certain uh, writings as being holy and authoritative. And so both within the Christian and Jewish faith, uh, we have a, uh, a shared set of documents called the Hebrew Scriptures. We often call it the Old Testament. Jewish people call it the Tanakh, which is an acronym um, for those same books. And uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's wonderful to be able to utilize as a tool because in our faith uniquely, um, we have thousands of years of prophetic history that all pointed forward to what the Messiah was going to look like. And so there's wonderful sections of Scripture um, that we have, such as Isaiah chapter 53, 
right? Psalms chapter 22 that talk about large sections of Jesus's life, his death, the purpose of his ministry. Um, really, it's reiterated throughout the scriptures. Um, but uh, even uh, so, there's an interesting uh, discussion, and so I'll give you one example recently that I had um, with a Jewish man from New York who had called me. His girlfriend had recently become a believer, and uh, so he was inquiring about orthodoxy versus orthopraxy. So within Judaism, they really focus on what they do. Um, you really try to earn your way to be with the Lord, which is not unusual for most religious systems outside of the Christian faith. Um, and uh, within Christianity, we, of course, have an understanding that we're saved by the grace of our Lord through our faith and trust in him. And there's a section in Scripture, in the, in the Torah in particular, that gives reference to how God intended for the people of Israel to receive atonement. This is on a date that's called the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement is called Yom Kippur. It's found in Leviticus chapter 16. And in this section of Scripture, what it goes through is how the high priest is supposed to attain atonement for the people of Israel for one year. So what he does is he goes and he offers many sacrifices for himself and for uh, and for the nation of Israel. This is where the the scapegoat sacrifice is listed, and he, and the high priest is going through and doing all of these different sacrifices in order to be able to reconcile the people of Israel with God, so that they can dwell in His presence for one more year. The interesting thing comes out of Leviticus chapter 23, where the scriptures tell us specifically how the, what the people are supposed to do, because we see the high priest offers all these sacrifices. So then when we look at the instructions for the people of Israel, there's two things that are mentioned over and over for the day of atonement. One of which is they're supposed to afflict their souls. Really, the idea is to be broken for your sin. A sacrifice without any form of repentance really didn't have the same meaning to it. But the second thing that's reiterated, I believe it's uh, five times in six verses, is that you can do no work. So the only way for the people of Israel to receive atonement is to do no work, but to depend on the work of a holy man who interceded on their behalf. So when I was able to share this with this Jewish man, he understood that actually most of the things that he was being taught probably were incorrect and that the mm. Lord's intention for us to be able to receive forgiveness is through intercession from another as opposed to anything that we can do ourselves. So, yeah, that's one example. And uh, actually now this, in, this individual is in regular conversation with me and wants to know more about Jesus, um, just as an example. Fantastic. One more question for you, Trevor. Yeah. Um, and that's this. Your Chosen People Ministry website also mentions concerts as outreach. Is this Christian music about God? And then you talk about Jesus. Yeah, so um, one of the things that is done, and, and this is a common practice actually in Israel and has been for years, is uh, um, individuals who have faith in Jesus, Yeshua is his Hebrew name, is their Lord and Savior. What they do is they learn worship songs in Hebrew, sometimes ones that uh, that are Christian. Um, so there's uh, there's songs, for example, like uh, How Great Is Our God, that uh, that there's a Hebrew um, version of it, of course, uh, you know, Gadol Elohai. And, and so we, we have these songs that will go into public sections, sing to them, gather crowds, and actually be able to share people, share with people. The Jewish people are very celebratory, mm-hmm. um, kind of a different type of culture, and so they actually 
like engaging in public music and things things like that. And so, yeah, that's that's actually a method that we have used historically. And also putting together events will bring in uh, well-known messianic, you know, Jewish believing is what I mean by that, uh, musicians into different uh, venues and things and invite young people. And, uh, yeah, and it's an effective form of outreach for the Jewish community. Nice. Thank yeah. you for that, Trevor. Sure. All right. Anybody else want to? Chime I just I think of Paul's example. You know, he he went into the synagogues as was his practice every Sabbath, and it says he reasoned with the Jews from the scriptures to try to prove that Jesus was the Christ. Uh, he writes in Galatians that the law leads to Christ. So, using the Old Testament, using the law to convict of sin and their need of forgiveness and a savior, and using the scriptures like Isaiah fifty three, like. Psalm 22, which is a crucifixion psalm, like Psalm 2, there are many messianic psalms, to point people, Jew or non-Jew, to Christ. The fact that you have all of these prophecies and descriptions of the coming Messiah for a thousand years before he comes is a very powerful proof that this is God's word, and it's God who knows the future and pointed to this. There's some hundred unique individual direct prophecies for Christ's birth, life, death, ministry, and resurrection. I have a question for Trevor right along that line. Because uh, I asked the questions, Tom. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll ask you, Bill. Or <laughs> ask, you. <laughs> ask me and then I'll ask Trevor. Okay. Uh, in Luke 24. Okay. In Luke 24. Two disciples. Two disciples. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Uh, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted them, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Yeah. We know that. Most Christians I know of hear that, hear what we're saying, and don't have a clue where to look in the Old Testament. Can you recommend any publications or books or anything you've seen that gives a good tracing of what Jesus was talking about here to the scriptures in the Old Testament? Yeah, so uh, actually Michael Rydelnik, who's a uh, Old Testament professor at Moody, just came out with a uh, with a book that uh, lists all of the messianic prophecies. Um, and and it's, it's, it's a massive piece of work. Right. Oh, I'd love to see uh, that. Yeah. Bill, uh, will you buy it for me? No. <laughs> okay. Just thought I'd I might get pizza someday, though. <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, you know, we, we put out a publication with Chosen People Ministries called Isaiah 53 Explained. And it's been a very effective tool, a great gift, actually, to give Jewish people. Actually, I know uh, personally a few Jewish people that have come to faith through this work. Mitch Glazer, the president of the organization, wrote it, and he wrote it to a non-believing Jewish person, particularly a family member, actually, and, and very wow. very specifically. Mm. And, uh, and it really presents Isaiah 53, breaking down um, the implications, what it means. If, if, for those of you that aren't aware, and I'd recommend that you read the section of Scripture, it, it's, it's so powerfully illustrates who who Jesus is. It's actually the only text in all of scripture and it's prophetic. It's hundreds of years before Jesus is born that speaks about his appearance, how he's going to look, what his mission is, that he's going to die for our sins, that he's going to be, uh, he's going to die with, uh, with, uh, uh, excuse me, with, uh, criminals and he's going to be buried with, in a rich man's tomb. I mean, all these things are prophesied hundreds of years before his birth. So it's really a powerful, powerful message. Mm. The Jewish people actually are taught if they're educated that that speaking of um, the nation of Israel, um, which I I love actually when they come to that conclusion because then the follow-up if somebody is is educated, that's that's typically what they're taught. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I love when they come to that conclusion because the follow-up becomes, well, then what kind of Messiah 
could we relate to as a people of Israel? Is it a Messiah who comes and rules and reigns and has the nations bow down before them that you're waiting for? Is it a Messiah who's hated, rejected, persecuted, and killed who looks more like national Israel? Mm-hmm. Trevor, can I? Yeah, yeah, well, we've got to go to break here pretty quick. Oh. Let me just squeeze one more and then we'll come back with your it's question, tight. Tom. Uh, Trevor, there's kind of an explosion of Jewish people coming to faith in Christ. Is the majority uh, younger Jewish people or older, or do you know the percentages? That's a great question. Okay. Yeah, so uh, we know the, we know, we can guesstimate the numbers, right? So in America, according to Pew Research, it was actually, they stated that 19% of the American Jewish population now professes Jesus. Wow. So some of these people That's might amazing. not be, amazing. Well, well, some of these people might not be, um, as we would believe, uh, born again believers in that some of them, maybe they had one Catholic parent, one Jewish parent. So they were raised nominal Catholic and consider themselves okay. Christian. That that that's that has to be accounted for. But the numbers most likely and and more accurately are probably somewhere around the line of a million Jewish people out of seven and a half million nationally. It seems like the younger generation is more and more open. Uh, that's what it seems like. Okay. And and this is just what I hear from the different missionaries who are working. I don't think we have specific information, uh, Bill, regarding uh, age groups. Although uh, although we do have information that the younger people are more open to it. Okay. Uh, which the Pew Research also came up with. We don't. I don't know if we have the exact numbers. At least I haven't seen that yet. All right. We're going to take a little break. Come back. Lots of time for your questions. Send them over. Eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. I have Jeff, Trevor, and Tom as my power panel today. Again, 877-933-2484. Hi, this is Bill Arnold. You might be the kind of person that goes to Paris and still listens to Faith Radio on the app. Or you might be more like the person that goes into the next room in your apartment and listens. The good news is, is using the app is just as easy in both places. Downloading the free app is crazy easy. Just text the word app to 877-933-2484 and click the link. And if you happen to be in Paris, there is a really nice little coffee shop not far from the Eiffel Tower that serves a really nice chocolate biscotti. Welcome to the show. If you just joined us, it's Guy Talk for the whole two hours. And I love it. I've got Jeff, Trevor, and Tom as my power panel. Bring your questions to the table. Whatever you have, send it over, 877-933-2484. Just before we went to break and during the break, we were chatting about the large number of Jewish people coming to faith in Christ. And I think there was still some more conversation to be had about that. Jeff, what did you want to ask Trevor? Well, my question is, we know that in the end times, at the end of days, when Christ returns, Israel will be saved. They'll finally turn to their Messiah and recognize him and be saved. Romans 11, all Israel will be saved. Is the fact that more and more Jews are believing in Christ today, do you feel that's a sign that we are approaching those days? Yeah, and uh, you like like I think we mentioned, Jeff, uh, uh, I, all, all of us here would believe that uh, we're obviously— 
moving closer to the end of days as uh, you know kind of as you see the world heading in the direction that it does um but of course the church has believed this forever too so so I don't I don't know I, I put stock in it in my heart but not in my mind per se but uh, but so um so I think that uh, it could be an indicator as as you stated it's Romans 11:25 right for I did not desire brethren that you should be ignorant of this mystery lest you become wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the gentiles has come in and so all Israel will be saved right and Zechariah 12:10 there seems to be some kind of national turning of Israel at some point in time that occurs um we we see we see indication of that in scripture but uh um, it, what's fascinating, particularly about what we see is, and I'm sure that you guys have seen the information on this, is generationally we're actually seeing a decline of faith amongst the general population in America mm-hmm. and Jesus. And and we're at the same time, we're actually seeing an increase of faith amongst the Jewish population. We, we've never seen this happen as far as I know in world history. There's been times to where there's been increases of faith amongst the Jewish people, um, you know, it, during the Jesus people movement, there was a an increase of faith and and these type of things, but I don't think we've ever seen it at the same time that there was a decline in the general population, and and we're seeing that not just here in America, is my understanding, but possibly in some other countries around the world. Uh, does that mean that Jesus is coming back right away? Uh, I hope so, um, but uh, I I don't know, uh, and uh, it, you know it could be it could be just a, a time or something that we're seeing, and it, it's wonderful. I'm blessed by it. You know, praise God. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that could be more and more my family members, mm. um, but but I'm I'm of course not sure. There was a great stat about World War II. Would you repeat that, Trevor? Oh yeah. So um, so pr- and and unfortunately, often when we see an increase of faith amongst the Jewish people, it often uh, correlates with an increase of anti-Semitism, which we're seeing here in America too. I mean, it's it's really exploding. Mm-hmm. Um, our building recently was tagged with swastikas and things oh, of that right. nature. But um, but anyway, here so, in town, yeah, in Minneapolis, yeah, in St. Louis Park. Wow. Uh, um, but. Uh, but so, um, so in any way, uh, uh, there in previous to World War II occurring, you know, with Nazi Germany's rise, uh, the um, our Mitch Glazer did his dissertation. He's the president for organization on this topic, and they found that there was uh, approximately two hundred and fifty thousand Jewish people in Europe that were professing Jesus, um, and then all of a sudden this horrible event occurs, and so we're, there is a similar pattern um, that we're seeing here, which I, I you know we pray doesn't continue. Um, because, uh, of course, that's a horrible, horrible thing to ever occur. Mm-hmm. I, I have another question, Bill, if For I Trevor? ask Trevor. All right, you get one more, Tom. Okay, I'll be good. That's it. <laughs> I'm thinking of the listeners, and I, if I was a listener, I'd be fascinated with what you said about Isaiah 53 and the exposition on that. How does a listener get a copy of that? Oh, yes. Oh, thank you, Tom. Yeah, so at chosenpeople.com, and you just simply go to our bookstore. Uh, there's been a lot of campaigns where we promote the ministry. I think, actually, there, there might it might even be... Well, let's just stick with chosenpeople.com. It, Isaiah 53, the book itself, actually has its own website. I, I honestly don't remember. Sure. Mm-hmm. All right, gentlemen, here's another question that just came in. Did Jesus fast for 40 days in the wilderness and then was tempted, as written in Matthew 4... 1 through 11, or was he tempted during the 40 days, as written in Mark one thirteen and Luke 4, 2? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure the temptation was both. You know, you have the climax of it at the end with Satan and the three temptations trying to move Jesus off track from his messiahship. 
But during those 40 days in the wilderness, you're fasting in order to be in communication with the Lord and to put more time into meditating on his word. And I'll never forget what uh, Martin Luther once said 500 years ago. He said, wherever the Lord builds a cathedral, Satan will build a chapel. So it doesn't matter. Satan Hmm. was there the whole time doing everything he could to distract Jesus. And yet we see Jesus never became distracted. And that's hope for us because we all get tempted. We all get pulled off the side. Jesus did not. Let me read the Mark passage because I think the Matthew passage is more clear that it's at the end. The Mark one is a little more confusing maybe in the English. It says that once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, he was with wild animals and an angel attended him. So I don't know that it's absolutely clear in Mark that it's someplace in that 40 days rather than the end. I've always pictured it. I've never really thought about this question before, but I've always pictured it at the end of the 40 days is when Satan came to him. Sure. All right. Let's see. What is a good way to learn and start meditation? Learn and start meditation. What's a good way to do that? Well, let's let's first define biblical meditation um, because there is a worldly meditation, um, a transcendental meditation, which is all about emptying your mind, and that is not biblical meditation. Biblical meditation is about filling your mind. In fact, I remember hearing a study of the word, uh, the Hebrew word for meditation is similar to the cow chewing his cud. It's like we are going to study this word over and over and over, memorize it. You know, I think of the Psalms, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The word transforms us by the renewal of our mind, Romans says, and so it's the power of the word that transforms us. And so we need to know it. We need to memorize it. We need to set it to heart. We need to eat it, consume it, meditate on it, not emptying our mind, but filling our minds, fixing our eyes on on Jesus. So that's biblical medication. How do you start? Start with a book of the Bible, start reading, start studying. I've been teaching on how to study the Bible, and that's going to be coming to an end in a couple of weeks. And then we're going to offer, and I offer this every year, how to discover your spiritual gifts. But I've added to that, not only will you learn how to discover your spiritual gifts, you'll also do an inventory which helps you understand your temperament and also your passion. What drives you from the inside? Because it's that combination. The reason I say that is I worked with an older pastor who had been a great missionary, and I had introduced at our church many years ago the hour that changes the world. And so you have 12 steps, you pray through it, and you meditate on it. And one day he came to me in tears. He was in his 70s, and he goes, I am not a good Christian. I said, well, what do you mean not a good Christian? I can't set for an hour and do that. I've tried. I just get distracted. I can't do it. What's wrong with me? And I said, well, Connie, when do you pray? Well, I, I walk an hour and a half every day, and I talk to the Lord the whole time. I said, well, that's your temperament. It's okay. And I think sometimes we get mixed up in this idea of meditation. And lots of books written on it. There's only one method, way to do it. You have to find out who Jesus made you to be. And I know lots of people, when I tell them to read the Bible, they go, I'm not a good reader. I go, you're in luck because you can get on your phone now, the Bible in audio Audio, format. You can listen to it that way. And I have lots of people now that tell me that they listen for a half an hour before they go to bed every night. So whatever your temperament is, whatever your passion with your spiritual gifts, put it to work for you. It doesn't matter if you do it the way I do it or not. Do it the way that works for you. Yeah. And if you have trouble sleeping, 
listen to my podcast. <laughs> I guarantee you'll fall asleep in minutes. Anyway, we're going to take a break. When we come back, lots more guide talk. Send your questions over, 877-933-2484. Jeff Berdorn, Trevor, Trevor Rubenstein, and Tom Parrish. I can't believe I freezed on that, Trevor. I'm so disappointed in myself. Anyway, 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. talk or guys who talk power panel is jeff trevor and tom let me know what questions you have there's some wonderful questions coming in not to mention some good comments as well joan said uh, we have to be moving closer to the end times we can't be moving further away <laughs> <laughs> good we point. all like good that one. comment thank you for that all right um here's a question uh, a few weeks ago i saw a lutheran church uh, had the congregation read the sparkle creed saying jesus had two dads is that the unpardonable sin when it goes against the power of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary for Jesus' birth and leading a congregation astray? Tom Parrish, I'm looking at you. Well, I'm a Lutheran pastor, and I strongly disagree with what this church did. And as I told of you, I actually contacted them and let them know that they're going to have to give an account to the Lord for what they're doing. Now, whether it's the unpardonable sin or not, I wish that was defined better in Scripture. It's there, but it's not fully defined. However... I have another biblical word for what they're doing at that church. It's called anathema. And it is one of the worst things you could be doing because it is misleading people from the truth of Jesus. And I don't want to have to stand before Jesus and explain someday why people aren't in the kingdom of God because I taught them the wrong thing. That's what these pastors are going to have to do. And I say it again now, they need to repent. So I don't want to give the creed much credence on air, but I want to read just one line. It says that I believe... In the non-binary God, whose pronouns are plural, this has a lot more to do with liberal politics than it does to the Bible, but it goes on to say that Jesus had two dads, like the questioner pointed out, and saw everyone as a sibling child of God. Well, you can specifically point to Scripture to say, no, that's not correct. We become children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. John says that we are given the right to be called children of God when we believe and are made new, we're born again, that's when we become sons of God, childs of God. So it's completely unbiblical. You know, there's uh, there's two or three, I should say, primary forms of Judaism that are practiced today, and uh, one one of which uh, is called Reformed Judaism, and which is probably the most kind of left leaning. I'll describe what I mean by that. And the other is uh, is Orthodox, which is would be the most right leaning. But the way that it really is categorized is one system of belief and practice prioritizes the cares and concerns of the world today over the historic religious faith. Mm-hmm. The other prioritizes the historic religious faith over the cares and the concerns of the world today. 
And what we see happening, not just in Judaism, but also in Christian circles, is people kind of look around and say, well, what's the world concerned about? What are people concerned about today? And that becomes elevated, and that starts to dictate their understanding of Scripture, as opposed to allowing Scripture to define our understanding of the world. Something interesting, and John makes this clear. When we become believers in Jesus, we really are forsaking our citizenship here on earth for our kingdom citizenship. He makes this statement in 1 John chapter 2. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lusts of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. So are we looking for what's temporary and what's going to impress other people of the world? Are we looking for what's eternal and what are the things of God? And unfortunately, people are prioritizing incorrectly, um, and uh, it's as as both uh, these gentlemen have said, Mm. destructive, unfortunately. Thank you, Trevor Rubenstein, for that comment. That was wonderful. All right, my next question is this. My mom is three years into her battle with Alzheimer's. Mm. My dad's a strong Christian man and has met with a group of prayer warriors weekly praying for healing for my mom. But we are yet to see the prayer answered. My dad has become discouraged and is ready to give up on God healing her. How can I encourage him when his prayer has not been answered? That's always a tough one when you have a prayer for healing. I just had this conversation with some friends that they had been praying for their parent for uh, quite a while, who then finally just passed away just a few weeks ago. Um, you know, the, the, there is no guarantee of physical healing in Scripture. If there was, we would have a guarantee of living in this body forever. Uh, we have a guarantee of eternal life, but guess what? It's not in this body. Um, if your prayers haven't been answered yet, one, keep praying. Two, end your prayers with thy will be done. That's a pretty safe place to be. Thy will be done. Knowing that God is working all things for his good. Um, But also understand you're in good company. Paul prayed three times for a thorn to be removed. God didn't answer that prayer for him either. And he learned this lesson from that no from God. I've learned that your grace is sufficient for me. What about Gethsemane? Yeah, in the end, Jesus asked, Lord, take this cup from me. But in the end, not my will, but your will be done. It's it's always a pretty safe place to be when you can earnestly pray to God, but in the end say, Lord, but not my will, yours be done. In my ministry, I buried four children. I hate it. It's one of the worst things you have to do. But what I've discovered in that is, and everybody always asks, why did God allow this to happen? Why do you take this little child? You know, why didn't he take somebody older? Well, I don't have an explanation for that. Nor do I think that the Lord is is just taking people out of the world. I think it's much more complicated than that with sin and brokenness. Mm-hmm. But where we often don't understand it is that the church are supposed to be the people that are going to be there, not just for the funeral, but literally from the now into the future, and still keep praying and talking to the family, the mom and dad, the brothers and sisters, and encouraging them. And too often, we don't do that in Christianity. We have the funeral. We have the dinner afterward. Everybody's so sorry. Everybody sends notes. But two months later, 
Most people mm. have forgotten. And as a result, the family is carrying the burden by themselves, and the devil is very happy. And who did they begin to blame? Well, the Lord. He didn't come through. He didn't do what he was supposed to. The Lord predominantly comes through today, as the Bible talks about, through his church, through his people. And unfortunately, most of us as his people don't get that. And as a result, we are hoping somebody else does it, or they just get over it. But we have to be the Lord's voice there. So for this gentleman with his his dad... um, the basic thing I would do is if these other men don't want to be there to pray with him, I would still say, Dad, I'll pray with you every day or every other day or whatever we do, and I'll bring some other guys to pray, and we'll do that until either Mom is healed or the Lord takes her home. And do that. And I've seen mm-hmm. that when people actually do that, people's faith is renewed, people come back, and if the person does not is not healed and dies, it's more acceptable. Even when it's with children, because I've seen children in hospitals and watched them die. So I I think we forget that Jesus, the head, we are the body. That's not a metaphor. That's our reality. But we've got to live that reality out. All right. Um, Here's another question I found interesting. Would you guys discuss the thought that John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and Jesus did die for us? but was only dead for three days, and then he was right back with the Father. I'm struggling how to talk to my non-Christian friends about this. Well, the resurrection is part of the gospel, right? If Jesus died and stayed in the grave, he wouldn't have conquered death so Mm -hmm. that we would be set free from sin and death. When he died, it's like he went to death and punched a hole in the back door and proved to the world, that he is who he said he was. He said, I'm going to die for the sins of the world. We were talking about Isaiah 53 at the start of the show, pierced for our transgressions. That is the atoning work of Christ on the cross, and he proved who he says he was by conquering sin and death once and for all and rising again. So it's a it's an integral part. I, I'm, I'm struggling with the question, like, like that death wasn't severe enough or it wasn't long enough or or people object to the well what's the big deal because he just rose again afterwards or i i i I have a feeling that's the direction that he's asking okay he made this sacrifice but three days later he was alive and back with the father so yeah so i i you know i think i'd ask the person have you ever been crucified (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's it's quite a quite an ordeal. I mean, it's one of the most painful deaths a person can experience. I've heard medical doctors speak on what would happen to the human body during the crucifixion. But regardless of the physical, uh, you know, torment that occurred on the cross, what happened on the cross was a spiritual event. Yeah. The spiritual event was that Jesus was a sin offering for the sin of the world. That's part of the gospel message. That is what I think I'd focus on. There are two things I think we often miss on this topic, and I agree with you. I was asking the same question, so thank you, Jeff. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Now, the Greek word is cosmos. When Jesus came and died for us and rose again, it wasn't just for the world as we understand it. It was for the entire universe. Now, I don't know what that means, but it's, it's a big thing to do. The other thing we often miss is that Jesus took the burden of the entire human race and brokenness upon himself. I've had burdens in my life. I've had sadness. You guys know I've had a grandson that died, and it's not an easy thing. 
But what if I had 50 grandsons who died? What mm. if I had a thousand who died? What if I had to deal with all the sins of the world and it's all piled on me? That death was sufficient for those sins. Now, three days later, he rose from the dead as Isaiah 53 and all of that goes back to. But it was to show he was who he was and he took the burden and he he came out of it, you know, rising from the dead. So I understand the question, but I think you got to look broader at the question and understand this was a monumental, universal event for our forgiveness and new life. Yeah, and uh, it's. I think that maybe the focus that he's looking at in this account is maybe not correct. Uh, so uh, really there's a universal problem because uh, the death rate in America is one per person, right? There's no exception. And, uh, <laughs> and so it's a universal issue. And the reality is, is in all of human history, there's one man who's ever shown us that they can physically overcome death. There were people that were raised by others in prayer that we read about in Scripture, but one man that was able to raise himself from the dead, uh, this, is, this is our Lord. And so if we have a problem of death and we want to know how to overcome this, it makes sense to follow the only person that's ever demonstrated to us that he can do it. And this is Jesus. And so there's there's a component to, I think, the resurrection, which is maybe um, not he's maybe he's missing that focus because that that's really a, an object that we're supposed to focus on in the process because death is a problem. He's the solution. So, you know, there's a lot of different explanations for different religious leaders throughout history. And they might say that their spirit or their soul went to go be somewhere or to do something but that you can't prove. But the resurrection is provable because it's bodily. And there's one other component to it, I think, that's that's really significant. And you see this in both Isaiah 14 and in Ezekiel 28, when it's talking about the king of Tyre and the king of Babylon and kind of playing that in with, with Satan, really the, the individual that we read about here, is that the way that God deals with somebody that says that they're a god is he says, you're going to die and you're going to stay in the grave. So when Jesus didn't just die and stay in the grave, he actually was proving that he is a God. Yes. Not just a God. Excuse me. He is the, the, the God. God. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that was, that was a, a slip for our Jehovah's Witness maybe <laughs> listeners. To, but, uh, but, but anyway, so, so really it's making a statement that he is God and that if we need to overcome death, he's the way. And they added that, Trevor, and that's exactly right. He also opened the doorway through his death and resurrection for us yep. who are doomed to death because of the world and our sin. But now you and I, the moment we believe in Jesus, eternal life has already begun. John 10 says, I lay down my life, Jesus said, only to take it up again. That's the big part of his death is Power. the resurrection. And I've, I've, over the years, I've surveyed most of the world's major religions, um, there's only one guy who claims to have conquered death and rose from the grave. Nobody else has risen from the tomb on their resume. I like it. Trevor Rubenstein, Jeff Verdorn, Tom Parrish are my power panel today. Let me know what questions you have. 877-933-2484.
Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter, thank you so much. Becoming a supporter today by visiting myfaithradio.com. I'm back with Guy Talk, or guys who talk. Jeff Verdorn, Trevor Rubenstein, Tom Parrish. The Power Panel today, they're ready for your questions. Send them over. Don't wait. 877-933-2484. Here's a question, gentlemen. Uh, what is the difference between Hades and hell? Is paradise and heaven the same in the Bible? You have, before the cross, everybody who died, whether you're righteous or unrighteous, you went to Hades in the Old Testament. It was called the grave or Sheol. And it had two compartments to it. We get this description from Luke 16, where one side is called the bosom of Abraham or comfort or paradise. And the other side is called torment. So before the cross, both the righteous and the unrighteous went to Hades, the two different side. That's where Christ went, by the way, when he died, descended into Hades and then rose again. The, the righteous were then brought to heaven, and now paradise is in heaven with God. That's where we now die. When believers die, they immediately go into the presence of the Lord, absent from the body, at home with the Lord. Hell is kind of a euphemism. The Greek there is Gehenna, and it just means a really bad place. So there's actually no physical place called hell or Gehenna. It's called Hades. And then it's also the, the other place is called the lake of fire. Revelation 20 says that all of the lost throughout time will be judged and thrown into the lake of fire, and the lake of fire is the second death. So there's a place called Hades. There's a place called the lake of fire, which is the final place. And then there's this euphemism for a bad place. Gehenna is actually a valley right at the end of the Kidron Valley, right outside the old city of David, which was a dump. It was a smelly, garbage, somewhat burning kind of bad place. Yeah. But Jesus was very visual when he talked. He was he was a good storyteller, and I mean that in a very positive way. We don't have as good a storytellers anymore. He did that, and so he would use what was near people that they could relate to, like Gahana, and say, you see that place? That's, that's where what it's, it's like. It's going to be just like that, you know, and everybody goes, yeah, that's really bad. <laughs> I, and, you know, when you look here at uh, paradise, and I was looking the word up while you were talking, mm-hmm. you know, it's the same word that can be translated, uh, like in the Septuagint, Garden of Eden. Basically, it's a, it's a like a forest with animals and things like that. The point was, the people were very familiar with the story of Adam and Eve, but Jesus isn't necessarily separating it from eternal life or being with him in heaven. He's just saying, hey, today you'll be with me in paradise to the thief on the cross. You're going to a good place. Mm. And that is what we have to understand. For me, the bottom line of the whole thing, whether it's hell, paradise, whatever, is still the John seventeen three. Now, this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus, the Messiah, or the Christ who have been sent. It is in the relationship. And so the place doesn't excite me as much as it did when I was a little kid, but the relationship does. Yeah, it's, it's you're going to live forever with Christ, right? Yeah. With God and Revelation 21.3 says, and now the dwelling of God is with man. And so forever and ever and ever, we will be with God. So yes, it's the person. He is our reward. He is our portion, right? I I, I love the line when David says, 
Uh, don't abandon me in the grave. Don't abandon me in Sheol. Don't leave me there, Lord. Right. It's like God says, no, don't worry, David. I know you got to you gotta be there until the cross. And and I when I teach this in class, it's like, boy, I've, I haven't heard this before. Why did people have to go to Hades on the comfort side, the paradise side, before the cross? Well, it's I don't have a verse for this, but I think it's pretty evident. The Lamb of God had not yet paid for the sin of the world yet. So God says to all the Old Testament saints, here, I'm going to place you here in comfort in the bosom of Abraham until such time as the Christ shall come and do that atoning work that we were talking about in the, in the last segment. And now that that's been done, now David and all the righteous from the Old Testament can come up to heaven in the paradise of God, the third heaven where the throne of God is. Yeah, we can get that clearly from John fourteen six, right? Where Jesus said that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And so if it's not through Jesus, obviously they couldn't have entered. When I fell in love with my wife, Jan, many years ago, I won't tell you how long, but it was a while back. <laughs> that, that first, you know, several months, and I mean, really through a lot of it, I didn't care where we went. I didn't care what movie we went to. I could have cared less about the football game we went to. I just wanted to be with her. And we have a glimpse of that in our life when we fall in love. That's what it means. Eternal life is certainly a place. Heaven is certainly a place. I don't want to say it isn't. It certainly is. But the gold streets are meaningless compared to being with Jesus. And that's what we're after. All right. Thank you for that, Tom Parrish. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For, what verse are you in? Uh, I'm in 1 Corinthians. Corinthians chapter 1. Yeah, which verse? I'm sorry, I started in verse 21. Thank you. Yes. Now verse 22, For the Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Let's discuss. Paul's saying, I, I'm preaching Christ crucified. You know, I think of the Paul speaking at Mars Hill when he starts talking about Christ. He says, you know, I see in every way you are very religious people. You've got all these temples and all these gods. Let me tell you about this unknown God that you have indicated is over there. And he starts talking about Christ, Christ's work on the cross, and Christ's resurrection. And the Greeks, uh, some of them, basically say, what is this babbler talking about? I think that's the, the English word that's used. It's like, what are you talking about? Nobody rises from the dead, for goodness sakes. And here's Paul is proclaiming that someone did rise from the dead. Christ Jesus did, proving, like we were talking about in the last question, who Jesus was. Um, but, uh, you know, the stumbling block for the Jews, I mean, this is a, a metaphor that use, is used all over the New Testament, that Christ, this stone, is a stumbling block that they stumble over, and it will become their capstone. Their, this cornerstone of Christ becomes their capstone. So, yeah, they, the, the Jews miss it, uh, stumble over it, and, and many of the Gentiles just think it's folly. Many, many years ago, I was uh, in ROTC. That's still around anymore? Reserve so. training? Yeah. yeah, I think it is. Went to summer camp. Turned out I was a pretty good shot. And I've been able to shoot long distances. Here's the bottom line. When I go to shoot at 500 yards or 1,000 yards, not only do I slow down everything I can in my heart, 
There's a point where I stop breathing for a second as I'm squeezing the trigger. That keeps me on target. We have to slow down and get our breathing rate and stay focused on Jesus. Because when we were talking about that sparkle creed earlier, one of the last verses in there is love is love is love. Well, that's what we've done in Christianity. We move Jesus off the throne and we put love, we put tolerance, we put acceptability, we put all those things up there. And that's people's target now. The problem is when they get to the target, they don't get anything. Paul's saying, all you need is Jesus and him crucified. Nicely done, Tom Parrish. Any other thoughts to that? Well, well, obvi- gotta... Obviously, so the uh, Jewish people didn't necessarily have a concept of uh, two comings of a Messiah. Um, and so, uh, obviously, when the, when the Messiah dies, uh, that's a massive problem for yeah. them. Um, and so we we see that uh, reiterated and uh, all, and all and also seemingly a sign of weakness to the Greeks. But uh, as to the previous point, uh, he didn't stay in that position, but because of who he is, overcame death. Um, and as uh, as Pastor Tom said earlier, something that we have an opportunity to enter into. Mm-hmm. You know, and can I just point out in of Acts course. chapter one, the disciples were with him. Here, Jesus had been with them for three and a half years. He told them he was going to be crucified many, many times. He w- and then rise again, and then it it comes to pass. Right, he is crucified. He does rise again. He's with them on earth for forty days, and and the Jews that are with him say, "Is it now? Is it now? Are you going to start your kingdom? Is this where the kingdom starts?" Right. And they still, even at that time, didn't understand that he had to come the first time as that suffering servant, as the the one who takes away the sins of the world. He returns a second time as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. All right, we're going to take a break, and we're going to come back hour two. Lots more guy talk. Send me your questions, 877-933-2484. And if you're having a little bit of an emergency today or a little bit of a crisis or something personal that's just overwhelming you don't be alone don't be alone let us know what it is we will pray for you right now you can text that request over to 877-933-2484 maybe that's the very reason you tuned in today is to get this invitation because you're in a little bit of a crisis and we want to know that we care about you and love you and want to be there for you so let us know how we can serve you, pray for you, and come alongside you. 877-933-2484. My power panel today is Jeff Verdorn, Trevor Rubenstein, and Tom Parrish. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.